Hey, welcome to the New Abbey Podcast. This is Ed Barron. We're going to continue our journey through the book of Exodus, specifically starting in the first part of chapter 5, looking at systems, justice, and oppression. Here's a question to consider as we kick it off. Why do you think the United States is referred to as the greatest nation on earth? All right. Well, welcome again to New Abbey. My name is Ed Barron. I am famously known as being Brittany's dad. Right, so some of the parents out there will totally relate to that. Uh, although I've worked pretty hard uh, over the last um, several years creating my own identity and my own sort of <laughs> claim to fame, I'm pleased to announce I'm making progress with that. Um, I, I, so, so one of my favorite passages in scripture is when David says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And I think David's gladness came out of a place of thankfulness. I think David was thankful for a lot of things that he was able to go celebrate. So I hope you're thankful this morning. I'm thankful for a number of things, not the least of which today is my little brother's 58th birthday. So text him this morning. Oh man, I gave away my age. He's my little brother, but he's actually older than me. Does that work? Uh, I'm thankful that I'm joined today by my beautiful wife of 35 years, Lucia is here. Thank you. So thankful that she decided 35 years ago to go on this journey of life. Uh, I decided to go on the journey of life with her as well. And I get to wake up every morning to an expression of God's goodness, his faithfulness, his grace, and his mercy every single morning. So glad she's here. And I'm thankful for y'all. Um, I am so dying to unpack this question, but I don't get to do that because that's not the new Abbey way, but man, was that a powerful question, right? <laughs> wow. Um, the reason I asked the question is I wanted to create some disturbance in the room, and I thought that might be a little bit of a, and, and, and I don't, and, and, and I don't, disturbance in terms of, I know that people are all over the spectrum in terms of what that statement kind of represents, right? And so this sort of sermon today is going to be about dissonance. It's going to be about disturbance. It's going to be about perspective because we are still in this fascinating book called Exodus. I love Exodus, probably, arguably, my favorite book of the Bible. You know, you, you see these people, these Israelites introduced early on, and, and, and they are a prosperous people based on Joseph and the blessing of God upon Joseph's life, and they multiply, and, and, they, and, they, and, they, and they possess. And, and then Joseph dies, and a Pharaoh comes to power. We've been through this, right? And a Pharaoh that didn't know God, didn't care about the people, and they find themselves in captivity. And then you see these awesome women that come on the scene. So God is always like, reversing the script, like flipping the script, right? Changing the narrative, right? You have the people that are up and now they're down. You've uh, got women that are introduced early, even though some of us struggle where's, you know, with why can't women teach boys in school, right? But you see women early on in this book of Exodus doing wonderful things and, 
And then you see Moses in his own personal transformation of, of, of growing up as an outsider on the inside and realizing that there's so much distance in his life, this hum that uh, Corey referred to, that results in him making a really, really bad decision. And he, re and he, and he figures out as a result of that, I, I'd be better off in Midian. And keep in mind, it was the Midianites that got the Israelites to Egypt in the first place when they found Joseph and rescued him and sold him into slavery. He goes back there and he spends this time and he realizes through his journey that this God he's heard about is still present. Irrespective of the ups and the downs of his life, this God is still present. So this morning, we're going to look at a few verses out of the fifth chapter of Exodus. But before we do this, I want to continue kind of sort of this exploring this idea of, of dissonance and disturbance. So I'm an educator, right? Uh, I'm, at, I'm at Azusa Pacific University, right? <laughs> so, so I remember, I remember and, I, and I've used you as an example, when we said, any cougars in the house? And you said, hey, for a totally different reason, right? So now I'm always <laughs> conscious. So now I'm always conscious when I ask, are any, are any cougars in the house? Right? I'm like, oh, I better qualify that, right? In the APU, cougars in the house. Um, and, and, so, and so one of the things you know about learning is you have to be disrupted to learn. You cannot learn in comfort. It is, it is virtually impossible. You can have your uh, status quo reinforced, but you can't learn in, com in, in comfort. So the first thing I want to kind of deconstruct to get us ready for the message is this idea of comfort. See, here's my pet peeve uh, with the miseducation of Christians, that we've somehow been taught that comfort and blessing are the same thing. We've conflated these two concepts, that to be blessed, blessed and comfort are the same thing, and they are not the same thing. You, you, you see, if I ask you, uh, in times of plenty and in times of joy and in times of, 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 of favor, I, if I said, you know, how has God been in your life? And you would describe all these things that are going well. You would basically say, my life is kind of comfortable. It is meeting my expectations. And, and the proof in that is if, if I ask you, well, you know, when things are going wrong, how do you feel about God? And, and, and if we're honest, we'd say, well, you know, I think I did something wrong. We, we may not verbalize that. But you know in your heart, when things aren't going well, you start searching in your mental Rolodex to find out, was it that person I cut off? Was it, was it the little the white lies I told or the, the pencil I took or whatever the case might be? And we try to rectify that for what purpose? To bring that discomfort back into the realm of comfort, right? So we think God's job is to make us comfortable. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this, right? This is how we read the scripture. This is how we relate to each other. This is how we greet each other. How you doing this, this morning, brother? Oh, I'm comfortable. Now we say blessed, right? But what we really mean is, oh, I'm comfortable and trying to get, trying to get even more comfortable. <laughs> comfortable and highly favored, right? So that's kind of our mission in life. So I'm gonna borrow from a few of my favorite sort of really smart people. And the first one is a psychologist by the name of uh, Lev Vygotsky. And, and so Vygotsky, you follow me, picture a bullseye. Three circles, right? A smaller one, and another one, and another circle, right? In the center circle, when Vygotsky's talking about how people develop, he calls it the zone of proximal development. Not important, but this is what he's talking about. He says, in the center circle is what you currently know. We all know something. And what we know makes us what? It makes us comfortable. It, it, you know when you leave here and the light turns red that people are going to stop, or at least they're supposed to. 
right? You know what turns green are supposed to go? That creates a measure of comfort. So everything that we know in this center zone of knowing, I call comfort. He calls it knowing, I call it comfort. The second zone is what you don't know, but you could know if somebody entered that space with you. He calls it the zone of proximal development. I call it the grown zone. Because that comfort zone, to move out of that requires you to go into a space where your knowledge is, is lacking, hoping that someone will join you in that space to complete your lack of, of learning and you develop. But it's hard to get there because you got to move from comfort to discomfort. Is anybody with me this morning? I'm going to get this church to talk before the day is over. <laughs> Are you with me? Yes. So, so he calls it, the, he calls it the, 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 your, your bulk of knowledge. I call it the comfort zone. He calls the second level the zone of proximal development where learning takes place. I call it the grown zone. Because I want to call it what it is because where learning takes place sounds attractive to us and we all want to learn until we realize what it takes for us to learn. Right? So that's the grown zone. The final zone, Vygotsky would say, this is all that you don't know. And that's an exciting zone because it means that you will never know everything. Isn't that exciting? But that's not what we're taught. We're taught sometimes in church spaces that you know, that you know, that you know, that you know, as if you can know everything, and you can't, and you stop learning. That's where, that's where kind of the disdain for questioning comes from. I, I'm going to use her. What, who was our interesting person? Alex. That's what Alex was talking about with respect to question, because the misconception is that we can know everything. That kind of reduces the God that I serve to maybe not even a human Maybe not even human. So Vygotsky says it's all that you don't know. And I call it the growth zone. So you move from the comfort zone, you gotta go through the grown zone, uh, G-R-O-A-N. I wanna be clear. I was, I was giving this to my old, older daughter and she thought I was talking about the grown zone. You know, G-R-O-W-N, grown. <laughs> you know, when you get grown, right? No, this is grown, like it hurts, like it's uncomfortable. You go from the growth zone to the grown zone, and then you move into the growth zone. We're always growing. So I want you to hold on to that. The second thing I want to do before we launch into the scripture, because context is important to me. Context determines learning, right? You, you have to examine your own and understand others before you can absorb anything. If not, you're going to put the same filters on that you always have on and hear the same thing that you've always uh, heard, and you're going to leave with the same stuff you came in with, and I don't want you to leave that way today. So the second thing has to do with, um, I'm going to call it Dutch angles. Are there any film aficionados? Are, are, you, are you familiar with, your film student, are you familiar with Dutch angles? Yes, yeah, so I got one person. Let me talk to you. <laughs> so, so, so Dutch angles in film, uh, and I'm not a film expert, I just, I love this idea. If you ever watch a movie, and there's like the, the camera's at this weird angle and it's tilted and, and it makes you, quite frankly, like psychologically uncomfortable because stuff isn't supposed to appear like that. So a Dutch angle is designed when you're watching the movie to create this sort of psychological discomfort and dissonance so it acts, accentuates the, uh, the scene in the movie, right? So I'm going to show you a few Dutch angles, right? And then we're going to interact in an activity. Yeah, at church. I love the fact that this is a rowboat, right? And not a cruise ship. So, uh, so let me get the first, uh, first image. That's a Dutch angle. That's actually a scene from, 
Somebody said, oh, geez, oh, <laughs> right? So the, what, the, what the producers try to do when they use Dutch angles is there's a scene that needs to evoke some kind of response in you. And so before CGI and before special effects and all that stuff, they, you know, they tilted the camera. I got another couple of uh, Dutch angles, right? So this really like in your face sort of, anybody know who that is? Radio Rahim? Right, Radio Rahim. We'll tell y'all about it later. Yeah, Radio Rahim. Another scene from the same movie, right? So this movie, if everyone want to watch Do the Right Thing, has a lot of Dutch angles because it's pretty much a low budget movie. Not a lot of computer graphics, in fact, none at all. There's not a real music score to drive you, but the Dutch angles really, really provoke. Okay, now, I'm gonna put some images up, my own sort of Dutch angles, because I wanna, I wanna, I wanna prove something to you. I wanna prove the idea that the way you look at something determines how you see it, okay? Okay, first image. Oh, by the way, when the first image comes up, I want you to tell me what you actually see. I literally want to hear you, okay? First one. Oh, back up. Actually, um, we'll leave them up because those should have been animated, but that's okay. They're not animated, so we'll, we'll work with it. Okay, so put them back up. Let's go to the one in the, in the far right-hand corner, my right. What do you see? A bunny? A duck? Yeah, bunny duck. Okay. So good, so good. How about the, how about the uh, one next to it on, the, on my right? On your right? A lady with a feather? Old lady? Somebody didn't see the old lady? Okay. You're all in my preaching time, so I'm gonna keep going. How about the bottom left-hand corner? A face. It's a lake. Tree, someone walking, a fish, a couple, okay. How about the one on the other, the, the, the last one? A lake, a tree, people, a baby. Okay. Yep. Okay, bring it back. All right, bring it back. Um, leave them up there because people are gonna, they're gonna be working it out and I want them to go ahead and work it out, but try to pay attention, at least act like you're paying attention. Okay, so, so let me tell you what I saw from, from my vantage point. You guys were amazing, by the way. I've done this thing dozens of times and you, you all were probably the best group I've ever done this with. So here's what happened. So these angles, and I told you about Dutch angles, right? So these images are already, dis they're, they're, they're distorted, they're disoriented, right? So I told you the importance of disorientation to learning, right? So these are intentionally disoriented. Why are they disoriented? They're, in, they're intentionally disoriented because you and I are used to viewing things at right angles, top to bottom, left to right. In fact, if that occurs in any textbook you buy or if you go in somebody's house and their pictures are crooked, like me, I will be totally fixated on your crooked pictures and wanting to straighten them. That's our normal rea reaction, right? So in order for you to see what might be there, what did you have to do? You had to make yourself uncomfortable, right? Some of you refuse to do that. I'm not gonna judge you. Don't know what I mean, I have a stiff neck, so to speak. Um, but some of you really, you really got into it. And here's what began to happen. As you begin to make yourself uncomfortable, you begin to see what you didn't see otherwise. 
Some of you did, still didn't see it, as evidenced by duck. And I heard somebody say, duck? Right? Because you didn't see the duck. You saw the rabbit. And then somebody next to you said, no, if you look at it this way, the ears are, or the, the bill is going like this. The duck is looking up. And all of a sudden, you saw a duck, didn't you? Some of y'all still don't see it, but that's OK. We're going to keep going on. <laughs> the one, uh, this image right here, right? The first thing somebody said was face. And, and you were incredulous, my friend. You said, face? There's a this, right? Now that, and that happens all the time, right? Here's what I see based on my experience, my angle, my tradition, my religion, my uh, political affiliation. Here's what I see. And somebody says, no, that's not there at all. But when somebody started to outline it for you, your neighbor next to you began to, to draw lines and say, if you look at it this way, you can see it. Oh, yeah, aha, I see it. And then finding this image here, the baby's my favorite. Because we like to zoom in. We don't like to take the broad picture. Right? And the baby's the biggest thing on the bottom. I'll work with y'all after church to show you where these things are, because I still see you like baby. Right? But the idea is you had others around you begin to help you see what you couldn't see, but you had to first make yourself uncomfortable and allow someone else who, would, who has a different perspective than you inform what you saw. Okay? Now, I will tell you, I cannot see the old lady. <laughs> I just can't. I've had people in frustration Take me to the screen and draw her face. And I can't see her. But how do I know she's there? Yeah, somebody keeps telling me she's there. So who am I to say that she's not there because I don't see her? Oh, come on. Somebody got to be listening to me. Who, 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 who am I to say there's no, there's no old lady there because I don't see the old lady? When scores of people see the old lady and they keep telling me over and over and over, the old lady's there, I accept the fact that the old lady is there. Right? Because you keep telling me, and I honor your perspective, even though I don't share it. Oh, that was deep. Yeah, that was deep. Okay, you see where I'm going with this? Right? How you look at something determines what you see. Paul clearly states that we see through a glass darkly. It's kind of what he's talking about. We need others to look through the glass as well, and maybe they're darkly, and our darkly will make something a little bit more clear, but it's about engagement. So I think... When God shows up on the scene of Scripture and the narrative of human life, one of the things he's trying to do is adjust our perspective and help us see more clearly than we've seen before. And part of the challenge with reading Exodus is most of us have become victim to Cecil B. DeMille. I'm, I'm glad you got that. You probably have to be over 40 to do that. The movie The Ten Commandments, right? We, we think The Ten Commandments went down like it did on television. Right. And so what the first thing we say is Egypt bad. In fact, Egypt means sin and Israel good. And so we want to be like Israel. God beat up Egypt. And if you beat up Egypt, then Israel will be OK. And that's how we kind of work out our relationship with God. Get bad, of, get rid of bad and and we'll do good. And if I'm good, then God, you'll be good towards me. And he's up to so much more, so much more. In the book of Exodus. OK. I think we're ready to get into scripture. Okay, put it up. So this is Exodus chapter 5, first 21 verses. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Not exactly what God said, but we'll keep going. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. And then they said, 
the God of the heaven, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us go three days journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. Not exactly what God said, but we'll keep going. <laughs> but the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to, to the slave drivers and the overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota because they're lazy. That is why they aren't, that's why they're crying out. Let us go and sacrifice, let, that's what, excuse me, let us, that's why they're crying out, let us go to sacrifice to our Lord. So make the work harder for the people so they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but you will not, your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt, Egypt to gather stubble and to use straw. The slave drivers kept oppressing them saying, complete the work required of you each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed demanding, why haven't you met the quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Okay, so it's easy to read that scripture and think a number of things. If Moses and Aaron would have really said exactly what God said, Pharaoh would have got it and this magical sort of deliverance would have happened. So, it's, so we place blame on the oppressed, right? So if they would have just got it right, then things would have went well for them. Or we read this and say, why is God so absent in the trial and in the tribulation and in the challenges of humanity? Why, 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 why doesn't God move in the midst of that? And why does he let Pharaoh get away with saying, who's God? I don't know God. I don't care about God. So let's examine this. Let's examine this with a tilted sort of consciousness and recognize, as we've said time and time again from this these stairs, platform, that the Bible is written from a perspective of the oppressed. One of the reasons I had you examine the question that you examined, because whether or not we buy the idea of being the most powerful nation on the planet or not, that's how we were educated. Our history is written from the narrative of the victor. I, I would even argue that it's a challenge for us to take the place of the oppressed because that's not how we've been socialized. So I want to borrow from another smart guy that I like, Paolo Freire, who writes about the pedagogy of the oppressed. Pedagogy meaning the, 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 the practices and the discipline, the method of teaching. And simply, Freire says that the typical way that we teach people reinforces power by its very nature. It views the intelligent as having all the gifts and all the information, and those that are learning are empty banks, if you will, and the, the, the educator's job is to pour into that. And if you're pouring into the empty bank from a source of power, then you're just pouring in that which will reinforce the power that's in play. It's exactly what was happening in Egypt. 
In fact, go back to the very first verse. Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should let you go? I don't know him. The Egyptians placed a premium on knowing. And right there from this place of power, they're telling Egypt, hey, we control knowledge and knowing around here, and this is not in our knowledge and knowing, so we're not going to acknowledge it. Right? Doesn't, doesn't matter to us. Right? Not our framework. Right? Freire would argue that when we're teaching, whatever the environment is, we're teaching that if it's just the teacher's perspective to the taught, then real learning is not going on because there's not a dialogue. I love it that we have dialogue every Sunday in this church. Right? And the purpose of education, the purpose of education would, been, would then be the reinforcement, the reification, the continuance, the embedding, the, 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 the social control, if you will, of the masses based on what's being taught. Now, I know we are, we, y'all are mighty quiet in here, and that's good. I, I, I know this is heavy, and we're going to pull up. But just understand that when we're talking about systems and structures, they don't just evolve by themselves. They have to be supported. They have to be continued. There, there has to be a mechanism by which they are perpetuated. Uh, next slide. Go next page. In this First, on this top verse where it says, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. I think one of the most important things about that particular passage right there is that there's a lot of people that Pharaoh is recognizing that just by sheer numbers, the slaves are approaching a place, the oppressed. See, when I use slaves, we all discount ourselves because nobody came in here with shackles, right? But the oppressed now have the ability to rise up. So to keep them from doing that, let's otherwise occupy them with busyness. I don't, I don't have time to get totally into our nation's history. But if you notice in this scripture where you see slave drivers and overseers, the slave drivers are Egyptians, the overseers are Israelites. So the strategy in this banking system, in this education system, in its perpetuation of uh, social inequity, is you've got to find people in the oppressed party that align with the oppressors on the promise or the hope that they may somehow acquire a little bit of what the oppressor has, right? Because there's always kind of this dangling hope. You see, when you read this now, God is not talking about Egypt bad, Israel good, Egypt means sin. Egypt means Egypt is a typology of an oppressive system. And the oppressive system is just as detrimental to the oppressor as it is to the oppressed. Because both are dehumanized in the process. That's what God is dead set against. Next slide. Oh, I'm sorry, stay right there. So, 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 if you, so if you read it from this lens, you start to understand some of the concessions that the Israelites start to make. This is like uncharted territory for them. They're getting a little bit nervous about uh, this exchange with power. Because when you engage power, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a threat, right, of retribution, right? I'm a faculty member, and I, I hear students all the time talking about, I, I think my professor is like, Give me the runaround, but I, I ain't about to talk with him because he got that grade, right? right? So there's always that chance of retribution. Look at this line. He says they're lazy. Power is always trying to flip the narrative, by the way. Right? It's their fault. 
they're lazy. Um, So-and-so deserved to get shot in cold blood because he was trying to steal some cigars. I'm gonna leave that one alone. Um, they are lazy. This is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Otherwise, preoccupy them. Then the slave drivers and overseers went out and said to the people, here's what Pharaoh said. Notice that the overseers carried the message as well as the slave drivers carrying the message. See, one of the, one of the things I want us to examine today is how are we carrying the message, unknowingly carrying the message of oppression? Right? Now, it's, it's enough to be... Um, it's enough for us to say, I am not a racist. Right? That's enough for... But, but you know what's even better? To say, I am anti-racism. See, one is, I am located in my own personal space and I'm doing my own personal assessment. The other says, I'm going to engage, right? So strategically, what the, yeah. <laughs> strategically, what the Egyptians were doing or what, the, what, what Pharaoh was doing was a divide and conquer. If I can let you close enough into the ranks where you think you might benefit from power to sort of co-op your allegiance, then you'll be an agent even amongst your own people. I'm really talking about the house of God now. Right? I'm really talking about the house of God. To think that in your social location, whoever we are, that we've made it, and therefore we have no obligation or really no allegiance to God's bigger picture is a misguided notion. I'm almost out of time, next slide. <laughs> then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh why have you treated our servants this way? This is, this is, a, this is a real compassionate cry. Because I thought, if I'm an overseer, my, my, the, the, the posture of my heart is, I thought you cared about us. I don't understand why you're doing this. I, 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 thought, I, I thought we were friends. I, I thought that you had given me a position of power because you really cared about us, right? I don't know who this is speaking to this morning. But this is the real sense of disillusionment. Because every time, I, every time I look around, there's evidence of the same oppression going on. Again, they're lazy, they're lazy. It's the whole idea of switching the narrative. Next uh, slide. So the passage ends with, with this assessment, which is really, really, really profound. You have made us, this, this, so this is, a, this is a, the cry of the masses to those who are trying to help. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials, and have put a sword in the hand, in their hand, to kill us. Have you ever heard somebody respond to social uprising or, or, or difficult conversation by saying, we wouldn't have these problems if you just wouldn't keep bringing it up? If you, if you, if you just let well enough alone, we, and you see it right here. I'd like to think that we sort of created these narratives and genres in our, but we really didn't. That's what they're saying right here. It's, it's your own fault. If you would just stop talking about it, things would be okay. So here's what, here's what Freire says, and I'll land the plane here, and then we'll get into some more discussion. So Freire would argue in an academic or in an educational setting, 
By the way, education doesn't just take place in the classroom, right? He said the key to unraveling our power is not for the oppressed to become the oppressor. That's just flipping the narrative, right? It's really this sort of brave act of pursuing communication through critical dialogue. It means engaging. It means engaging at every opportunity you have. Engaging to the point where it will cost you something. Relentlessly engaging and not being satisfied for a response that's not an acceptable response. And the engagement and the conversation and the dialogue is not always verbal, sometimes it's praxis, P-R-A-X-I-S. Praxis, it means right action. So now you get the idea of social action. Social action is actually dialogue. It's conversation, it's communication. So the situation doesn't just get better, and we'll see as we move through Exodus that God is continuing to show the need to engage. In fact, I think the hardening of Pharaoh's heart had more to do with this sort of uh, propelling them to continue to engage because they had to engage. They couldn't just go into their prayer closet and pray that God would somehow do something to Pharaoh to make things better. I think that might be a good point to end on for now. Am I at my time? Yes. Okay. First time preaching in this church. Um, so, so, so there's a lot. So if I was to summarize it, right? This is, this is, about, this is about oppression and power. It's about looking from the bottom up. It's not about God as a genie in a bottle. It's about God that wants to abolish oppression. It's about a God of justice and righteousness who cares very deeply about the people that he created, both the oppressor and the oppressed. So let's do another small group deal and we're gonna ask another question. What are some of the ways that you can begin to speak, I wanna put air quotes around the term speak, truth, to power. Thanks for listening to the New Abbey Podcast. For more information, visit us on the web at www.newabbey.org.